0: Chapter Fifteen of My Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. My Mark Twain by William Dean Howells. Chapter Fifteen. When Messieurs Houghton and Mifflin became owners of the Atlantic Monthly, mr houghton fancied having some breakfasts and dinners which should bring the publisher and the editor face to face with the contributors who were bidden from far and near of course the subtle fiend of advertising who has now grown so unblushing bold lurked under the covers at these banquets and the junior partner and the young editor had their joint and separate fine anguishes of misgiving as to the taste, and the principle of them. But they were really very simple-hearted, and honestly meant hospitalities, and they prospered as they ought, and gave great pleasure, and no pain. I forget some of the emergent occasions, but I am sure of a birthday dinner, most unexpectedly accepted by Whittier, and a birthday luncheon to Mrs. Stowe, AND I THANK A BIRTHDAY DINNER TO LONGFELLOW, BUT THE PASSING YEARS HAVE LEFT ME IN THE DARK AS TO THE PRETEXT OF THAT SUPPER AT WHICH CLEMENS MADE HIS AWFUL SPEECH, AND CAME SO NEAR BEING THE DEATH OF US ALL. AT THE BREAKFASTS AND LUNCHEONS WE HAD THE PLEASURE OF OUR LADY CONTRIBUTOR'S COMPANY, BUT THAT NIGHT THERE WERE ONLY MEN, AND BECAUSE OF OUR STRENGTH WE SURVIVED. I suppose the year was about 1879, but here the almanac is unimportant, and I can only say that it was after Clemens had become a very valued contributor of the magazine, where he found himself to his own great explicit satisfaction. He had jubilantly accepted our invitation, and had promised a speech, which it appeared afterward he had prepared with unusual care and confidence— It was his custom always to think out his speeches, mentally wording them, and then memorizing them by a peculiar system of mnemonics which he had invented. On the dinner-table, a certain succession of knife, spoon, salt-cellar, and butter-plate symbolized a train of ideas, and on the billiard-table, a ball, a cue, and a piece of chalk served the same purpose. With a diagram of these printed on the brain, he had full command of the phrases which his excogitation had attached to them, and which embodied the ideas in perfect form. He believed he had been particularly fortunate in his notion for the speech of that evening, and he had worked it out in joyous self-reliance. It was the notion of three tramps, three dead-beats, visiting a California mining-camp, and imposing themselves upon the innocent miners as, respectively, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and Oliver Wendell Holmes. The humor of the conception must prosper, or must fail, according to the mood of the hearer, but Clemens felt sure of compelling this to sympathy, and he looked forward to an unparalleled triumph. But there were two things that he had not taken into account. One was the species of religious veneration in which these men were held by those nearest them, a thing that I should not be able to realize to people remote from them in time and place. They were men of extraordinary dignity, of the thing called presence, for want of some clearer word, so that no one could well approach them in a personally light or trifling spirit. I do not suppose that anybody more truly valued them, or more piously loved them, than Clemens himself. But the intoxication of his fancy carried him beyond the bounds of that regard, and emboldened him to the other thing which he had not taken into account, namely, the immense hazard of working his fancy out, before their faces, and expecting them to enter into the delight of it. If neither Emerson, nor Longfellow, nor Holmes had been there, the scheme might possibly have carried. But even this is doubtful, for those who so devoutly honoured them would have overcome their horror with difficulty, and perhaps would not have overcome it at all. The publisher, with a modesty very ungrateful to me, had abdicated his office of host, and I was the hapless president, fulfilling the abhorred function of calling people to their feet and making them speak. When I came to Clemens, I introduced him with the cordial admiring I had for him as one of my greatest contributors and dearest friends. Here I said, in some was a humorist who never left you hanging your head for having enjoyed his joke, and then, the amazing mistake, the bewildering blunder, the cruel catastrophe was upon us. I believe that, after the scope of the burlesque made itself clear, there was no one there, including the burlesquer himself, who was not smitten with a desolating dismay. There fell a silence, weighing many tons to the square inch, which deepened from moment to moment, and was broken only by the hysterical and blood-curdling laughter of a single guest, whose name shall not be handed down to infamy. Nobody knew whether to look at the speaker or down at his plate. I chose my plate as the least affliction, and so I do not know how Clemens looked, except when I stole a glance at him, and saw him standing solitary amid his appalled and appalling listeners, with his joke dead on his hands. From a first glance at the great three, whom his jest had made its theme, I was aware of Longfellow sitting upright, and regarding the humorist with an air of pensive puzzle, of Holmes busily writing on his menu, with a well-feigned effect of preoccupation, and of Emerson holding his elbows and listening with a sort of Jovian oblivion of this netherworld in that lapse of memory which saved him in those later years from so much bother. Clemens must have dragged his joke to the climax, and— left it there, but I cannot say this from any sense of the fact of what happened afterward at the table, where the immense, the wholly innocent, the truly unimagined affront was offered, I have no longer the least remembrance. I next remember being in a room of the hotel, where Clemens was not to sleep, but to toss in despair, and Charles Dudley Warner's saying— "'in the gloom. "'Well, Mark, you're a funny fellow.' "'It was as well as anything else he could have said. "'But Clemens seemed unable to accept the tribute. "'I stayed the night with him, "'and the next morning, after a haggard breakfast, "'we drove about, and he made some purchases "'of bric-a-brac for his house in Hartford, "'with a soul as far away from bric-a-brac "'as ever the soul of man was.' He went home by an early train, and he lost no time in writing back to the three divine personalities which he had so involuntarily seemed to flout. They all wrote back to him, making it as light for him as they could. I have heard that Emerson was a good deal mystified, and in his sublime forgetfulness asked, Who was this gentleman who appeared to think he had offered him some sort of annoyance? but i am not sure that this is accurate what i am sure of is that longfellow a few days after in my study stopped before a photograph of clemens and said ah he is a wag and nothing more holmes told me with deep emotion such as a brother humorous might well feel that he had not lost an instant in replying to clemens letter and assuring him that there had not been the least offence, and entreating him never to think of the matter again. He said that he was a fool. But he was God's fool, Holmes quoted from the letter, with a true sense of the pathos and the humour of this self-abasement. To me, Clemens wrote a week later, "'It doesn't get any better. It burns like fire.' but now I understand that it was not shame that burnt, but rage for a blunder which he had so incredibly committed. That, to have conceived of those men, the most dignified in our literature, our civilization, as impersonable by three hobos, and then to have imagined that he could ask them personally to enjoy the monstrous travesty, was a break he saw it too late, for which there was no repair. Yet the time came, and not so long afterward, when some mention was made of the incident as a mistake, and he said with all his fierceness, But I don't admit it was a mistake. And it was not so in the minds of all witnesses at second hand. The morning after the dreadful dinner, there came a glowing note from Professor Child, who had read the newspaper report of it, praising Clemens' burlesque as the richest piece of humour in the world, and betraying no sense of incongruity in its perpetration in the presence of its victims. I think it must always have ground in Clemens' soul that he was the prey of circumstances, and that, if he had some more favouring occasion— he could retrieve his loss in it by giving the thing the right setting not more than two or three years ago he came to try me as to trying it again at a meeting of newspaper men in washington i had to own my fears while i alleged child's note on the other hand but in the end he did not try it with the newspaper men i do not know whether it was ever printed or not But since the thing happened, I have often wondered how much offence there really was in it. I am not sure, but the horror of the spectators read more indignation into the subjects of the hapless drolling than they felt. But it must have been difficult for them to bear it with equanimity. To be sure, they were not themselves mocked. The joke was, of course, beside them— Nevertheless, their personality was trifled with, and I could only end by reflecting that, if I had been in their place, I should not have liked it myself. Clemens would have liked it himself, for he had the heart for that sort of wild play, and he so loved a joke that, even if it took the form of a liberty, and was yet a good joke, he would have loved it. But— Perhaps this burlesque was not a good joke. End of chapter fifteen read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox, winter two thousand and six.